on in. Come and grab your, come and grab your seats. Uh, how's everybody doing? Okay. Good, good. How's everybody doing? All right. Yeah. Oh, well, that's really good. So the sunshine's back this morning. I know you've had a week of snow. It's been hard, hasn't it? But the sunshine is back. Feels nice to be out of the cold again. Hopefully that's it till uh, till, till next winter. <laughs> um, but I doubt it. Uh, but it's, it's nice to have the sunshine back. Um, this morning, as you know, we're continuing in the book of Acts. We've been going through this uh, since the start of the new year. And we're, this morning we reach a really pivotal moment, actually, in, in the story itself, in the story of the early church, um, and a significant and important moment in, in the Jesus movement, actually. And that is because Stephen, uh, one of uh, the, the people from the church that we read about last week, Paul introduced him, uh, he is going to be killed. Not this morning, we're not going to cover his actual uh, death this morning, that's going to be next week, but this morning we're going to kind of talk about his arrest and the build-up to that and how he gets himself into that predicament. Um, but what we're going to see is, again, the ch- the, this wave of angry, evil, jealous corruption meeting the wave of the church, which is full of grace and peace and mercy and love and a dedication to Jesus that cannot be stomped out as they try so hard to do. And after this event, both the book of Acts and, and, and the, the apostles, they're going to move out just as Jesus prophesied. So this is the kind of last scene in Jerusalem that we're looking at. And it's then going to move out into Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus prophesied right at the beginning of the book. So with that in mind, there's, there's a couple of things to say to you this morning. We're going to cover quite a large chunk of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles... Open them up to Acts uh, chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have one on your phone and you would like one, there's some on the table at the back there. Go and grab one. If you don't have one at home, you can take it home. It's a gift. Uh, If you just want to loan it for this morning, you can grab one. But we're going to go all the way through to chapter 7, verse 53. So it's a really big chunk that we're going to cover. Now, I'm not going to read it all because that would just be the morning and that, that would be great. But I think uh, we're going to do something different this morning. So I'm going to pull out some verses as we go. So we're going to read together the arrest part. And then Stephen's speech is quite lengthy um, and wordy. So we're going to, I'm just going to pick out some of the key parts of that that I believe that God wants to speak to us through this morning. So everybody with me so far? Oh, well. Everybody with me so far? Come on. This is not a library, guys. Come on. Um, okay, let me pray. Father, just thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, that your word is alive and wants to speak to each and every one of us this morning. Lord, I thank you that when we allow you to, there is power in your word that is life transforming and life changing. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come this morning and speak to us. Lord, you would do something in us. You would, you would, Lord, turn our hearts towards you, challenge us, whatever it is that we need this morning, encouragement, uh, assurance, whatever it is. Just come and do it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read Acts 6, uh, 8 to 15. This bit's going to come up on the screen for you guys. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as provinces of uh, Cilicia sorry, and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. 
But they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow, I love that word, fellow, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that's the temple, this place, and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was, was like that, was like the face of an angel. I know that's how you feel when you look at me right now, but it's all right. I don't know why you're laughing. Right, okay. So <clears throat> this is just the context of what happens to Stephen, right? So this kind of builds a picture of what's going on. We're going to go through that real quick and talk about what's happening here. And you'll notice all the way through Stephen's story, right from this morning when we're talking about him, right till his death that we'll talk about next week, that you'll see so many similarities between his story and the story of Jesus and, and his death. How, the, how he, uh, false witnesses were brought against him how he was brought before the entire Sanhedrin, how that his trial was unlawful and false. Um, you could pick out a lot of things, and you'll see that this week and next week. But let's just look at what's happening first, and then we'll kind of get into the situation and what happens afterwards and how he responds to everything. So Stephen, it says, is first and foremost a man filled with God's Spirit and full of his grace and power. Man, what a description. Wouldn't that be good if people said that about you at your funeral? But just if that was people's memory of you, and because God's Spirit was in him, he was performing all sorts of wonders and signs and preaching the good news about Jesus. But as we read, there's, there's members of a synagogue, obviously, that he's, he, he's taken a dislike into him. It's called the, the Synagogue of the Freedmen, and, and this uh, would likely have been uh, Jews who were taken into slavery by the Romans, but later released. And they formed their own synagogue because they kind of had similar backgrounds, similar experiences. So they would form their own synagogue of like-minded Jews. And we see in the text that, first of all, they've taken issue with Stephen and what he's teaching, what he's doing, these wonders, these signs that he's performing, and what he's teaching about Jesus. And, and what seems to be happening is they engage in arguments with him, in, in debate with him. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, has a complete advantage over them. They're at a disadvantage. And every time they argue with him, every time they debate with him, Stephen has wisdom beyond his own knowledge. He's able to put the Scriptures in, in, out to them in ways that they can't argue with or they can't disagree with. So what do they do? Do they think, wow, this, this guy knows what he's talking about. I should listen to him and see what, what, where he's getting this knowledge from. I want to know about this Jesus he's talking about. No, they don't do that, as you can imagine. What they do instead is they think, this guy's a nuisance, we want to get rid of him. So in, because they can't theologically knock him down, what they decide is to make a plan to have him arrested. So it tells us that they, they pay, um, sorry, that, that they come up with a plan to bring false witnesses. And the way that it's kind of written, the Greek insinuates that there's some sort of financial arrangement between the, the, the synagogue of the freedmen and some, some people that they give some money to them to, to bring false witness against Stephen, to say these teaching things that are going to get him in trouble. So that's what they do. And he's brought 
and then we see them kind of work this master plan. They start by persuading, uh, by speaking to the everyday people. In verse 12, it tells us that they start with kind of everyday people in the, in the streets. And then it's, they tell the elders who were called to lead those people. And then it works its way up to the teachers of the law, also known as the scribes. And, and, they, and they eventually get Stephen before the Sanhedrin. And we talked about this, haven't we? Remember a few weeks ago, the great council in Jerusalem. Sanhedrin means council. It's the Jewish council, the leaders of the Israelite nation. And he's before the Israelite nation. And, he's, and two charges are brought against him. Two charges. The first one is... They say that he's teaching that Jesus will do away with the law of Moses, the customs of Moses that have been handed down. He's saying that Jesus is going to do away with the law. Really big no-no, by the way, for the, for the Jewish council. Second one is, he's saying that Jesus will destroy the temple. You remember this from Jesus' trial? And the issue here, of course, in, in what they're bringing, is that there is a slight element of truth to what they're saying. In fact, Jesus will do away with these two things. And actually, if you push Stephen on it, he would have to admit, yeah, I do believe that that's true. Uh, but it's not true in the way that they're presenting it. Um, it's not true in the way that they're bringing it forward. Uh, so we're going to look at them individually, and we're going to talk about them. The first one is the fact that, that uh, Jesus has come to alter the customs that Moses has handed down. That's the first accusation. And this is absolutely true. Jesus did exactly that. He came, uh, he came to deal, deal with the law and to fulfill the law. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. The law no longer had power. It was only through and still is only through Jesus that we are justified and that we are saved and made righteous before God. The law has lost its power. <laughs> uh, let me ask you a question. Who here in the room, I'm going to make this a rule, if, if you love rules, please could you put up your hands? You know who I mean. Jenny, why haven't you got your hand up? Um, that's my wife, by the way. Yeah, you love rules. Like, like, like you love instructions, like floor charts are like the best thing on earth to you. Like if, if this happens, do this, then do this, then do this. Like you love floor charts, you love rules, you love legislation, you love all that stuff. You just lap it all up. Uh, so... Put your hand up if that's you. Let me just see your hand. It's a rule that you put your hand up if you like rules, by the way. So, right, okay, a lot of rule followers around here. Like instruction manuals. Like we get, we get home uh, with like something from Ikea or something. Jenny's like, let me see the instructions. And uh, like, honestly, she's, the, she absolutely loves them. Or like we get a new toaster, by the way. Let me read the instructions before you throw that in the bin. And I'm like, it's a toaster. Well, I don't need instructions for a toaster. I've used one before. I'm not showing off. But I've used one before, several in fact. And, and yet she loves instruction. She loves the rules. Um, so you're either that way or you're the other way. You're like me. You don't understand why people who write instruction manuals keep sticking their nose in your business and telling you how to do things. I don't know why they do it. I'm getting on just fine without your instruction manual, thank you. And I'll refer to you when I'm in trouble, not when I'm not. not, when I'm not. Um, so you're either one way or the other. I'm, I'm speaking your language, I'm sure, at some point there. But but you know, it doesn't matter how good you are, how, how, how much you value rules and order. It doesn't matter how good you think you are at reading instruction manuals. The, re the point of it is, is that at some point in your life, you will make a mistake. You will get something wrong. You will miss an instruction. You will miss a point 
of putting together IKEA flat pack furniture, which will make, mean that you have to disassemble it all and put it all back together again. You will make a mistake at some point. Is that right or is that wrong? You will. And the problem with the law is, no matter whether you're a person who love, love following rules or you didn't, the reality is at some point you are going to make a mistake. You are going to mess it up. And nobody in all of history was able to follow the law right down to the letter of the law, wasn't able to follow every law, not just that, but the heart and the meaning behind that law, to have your heart right when following that law. And Jesus was the only one who ever did fulfill the law. Not only did he follow each every physical law, but he also, he understood the heart behind the law that, that was written. In Matthew 5, 17 to 18, he says this, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's a fulfillment of them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, I don't know about you, but I am so, so blessed that I don't live in the, in the covenant of the law. Are you? Like, I'm so glad that I don't have hundreds upon hundreds of laws to figure out and to follow and to figure out the meaning behind them and what I'm doing wrong. I'm so glad that I don't live in the law. I'm so glad that Jesus fulfilled them and completed them. And now, actually, his, his fulfillment is attributed to me when I accept him as my Lord and Savior. And, and the reality is, Instead of the law being our way to the Father, Jesus is our way to the Father. But notice Jesus is very clear that the law is not just going to disappear. And add to that, the teaching that we know comes from the early church, that the way that they held the Hebrew Scriptures, the way that they taught from them. We know that their heart wasn't to get rid of them or to destroy them, but rather to see them as fulfilled and that they point towards Jesus. Are you with me here? So, so Paul writes to Timothy, hey, Timothy, all Scripture, in, in, in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. They're still useful. We still need them. But listen, they're fulfilled, and they point towards Jesus. So, so that much is true. Jesus has come to fulfill the law, and in that respect, it makes the law that Moses handed down redundant, but, but it's not being done in a way that these men are characterizing Stephen before the Sanhedrin, that he's come, he wants to get rid of them and for us to ignore them. So they're trying to pin Stephen to, into a corner. The second accusation is around the temple. Well, Jesus has come to do, come to do away with the temple, to destroy it. Um, and we see that in the trial of Jesus. We also see that in the trial of Stephen. And the temple is the most holy place, not just in Jerusalem, but in the whole world. This is a place where God's presence is among his people in the temple. So to say that you want to destroy it, what are you trying to say, right? That course, that's bad. And since the book of Exodus, God's presence has been in a place with his people. It's been, it's been in the tabernacle, it's been in the, in the temple. Uh, however, after Jesus's uh, death on the cross, and, and we see the, the curtain temple, what happens to it? It gets torn in two. And God's presence is released from the temple. 
And we see at Pentecost, don't we? We see God's presence fall on each and every believer and his Holy Spirit. Instead of dwelling in a place of rocks in, in a temple in Jerusalem, now it dwells within each and every person. It dwells not just within them in, that we read about in books, but every single person here who, who declares Jesus as their Lord and Savior, his presence now dwells within you. You become his, have become his temple. Um, and we become a temple of what we, what we call living stones. You are a living stone of this temple. First Peter 2, 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. We don't sacrifice as animals anymore. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are his temple. Isn't that amazing? Look at us. We're a big pile of stones in here, right? Like, that's who we are. So, so both of these are true. And both of these are true. The, mos the Mosaic law, as they called it, has been fulfilled by Jesus. And the temple is redundant. It's, it's been destroyed because now, instead, it's been built with living stones. It's been built with people who follow Christ. And his spirit is given to them individually. And can you imagine, stood before the mighty Sanhedrin, the most powerful people in the country, the most influential people, the people who governed the country, who decided what happens and when in terms of the Israelite culture. He, he stood in front of them and they're bringing these accusations. Can you imagine his feeling in that moment? These people are going to decide whether he lives or whether he dies. And if he's going to die, how long and slow and painful that's going to be. And the, and the words that come out of your mouth next <laughs> are either going to make you or literally break you. <laughs> so what do you think Stephen's going to do? Well, he does what you imagine he's going to do. He rolls up his sleeves. <laughs> he takes a deep breath. And he gets ready to give the Sanhedrin a real good talking to. And, and like I said, it's not a short speech. I really, really encourage you to grab a cup of tea this week and sit down and read what he has to say in response to them and, and what's being brought to him as an accusation. But he chooses his words very carefully and he, he decides to communicate some things with the Sanhedrin, which are really important, not just for today, uh, for then, sorry, but for today as well. And, and, and so I'm going to pick out some of the kind of highlights. If you have your Bibles open, I'll tell you the verses I'm referring to. But, but I would really, um, I'd really encourage you just to tune in and listen to what, God, what Stephen says to them and what he feels that he's supposed to respond with. So, so what does he do? He goes right back to the beginning of the Israelite story. And he starts with Abraham, the one who was selected by God, Genesis 12, who is going to be the person that God is going to make a great nation from. It's an absolutely incredible story. And, he, and then we see uh, Abraham, uh, he's going to give birth to, he's not going to give birth, that'd be odd. Uh, he's going to have a son, Isaac, and Isaac is going to be the father of Jacob. Now, Jacob is renamed Israel, which is where the name Israel comes from. And he's going to pick out a couple of things. So he starts right back at the beginning. He's going to pick out a couple of things. But one of the main things that is that Stephen's going to show the Sanhedrin is that there are two groups of people. All throughout history, there are two groups of people. There are those who are righteous and there are those who are rebellious. Guess which one he's going to say they are? There are those who are rebellious. <clears throat> so he goes right back to Israel, the, the, father of, the father of the whole nation. And, he's, and he has 12 sons. 
He has a favourite son, Joseph. That's a bit of a topic for discussion there, those who have favourite children. Uh, those who have uh, favourite children, uh, he has Joseph. And Joseph uh, is sold by 10 of his brothers into slavery. He's, he goes to Egypt. He's a slave there. And we see him go from slave all the way to being the prime minister of one of the most powerful countries on earth, Egypt. And he's second only to the Pharaoh in terms of power. And even though there's at this point, there's this widespread famine across the land. There's no food anywhere. People are desperate. Uh, We see that God's already secured Israel's future because he's put in place Joseph into power as prime minister of Egypt. And they have bountifuls of food. You can read the story. Uh, But, 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 he had a plan for them to succeed. And there's shelter and there's food for the Israelites and in Egypt because of how God's worked his plan in Joseph. And notice it's the minority who, who is faithful to God's plan and trusting God. And God works his plan through that one person. And it's the majority that have rebellious hearts that sell their brother into slavery because of their jealousy because of their rebellion, because of their evil that's inside of them, and they sell their brother as he's good as dead to them. So, so God is working his plan, even though there is those who are rebellious. So bang, right from the get-go, God is working despite the evil that, that people act out. Um, and then fast forward 400 years, which he does in his speech, um, the, the Israelite nation has flourished and grown massively in Egypt, But 400 years on, the Pharaoh that is now ruling and reigning in Egypt has no idea who Joseph is and has no allegiance to Joseph. So the Israelite nation we see are put into slavery, the entire nation, as slaves to the Egyptian empire, which is when we see the introduction of Moses, the one who was sent to bring God's people out of slavery, to bring them into a new covenant with God to lead them, to govern them, and to be a mediator. When you read through the first five books of the Bible, you see that um, Moses is a mediator, or the the four books of the Bible, Moses is a mediator between God and his people. He's the mediator. And he's the one who brings them into this covenant with God. Now, a side note here, remember the context. Stephen has been accused of, of, of dishonoring of disregarding the Mosaic law. He's being called, you know, he's, he's disrespecting Moses. That's how he's teaching. He's not upholding the law that Moses brought. So what he has to say about Moses to the Sanhedrin is really important. And this is what he says. What he says is he says, hey, it was the same with Moses. He's pointing towards Jesus here. It's the same with Moses. There were those who rejected him and rebelled against this man of God. So I'm going to read from verse 33 to 36, chapter 7. He says, Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals for the place where you were standing is holy ground. This is Moses. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. God is sending Moses to Egypt to redeem, to bring his people out of slavery. This is the same Moses, Stephen goes on to say, that they had rejected with their words. Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, though the angel who appeared to him in the bush, he, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush, he led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt 
and at the Red, in the Red Sea, um, and for 40 years in the wilderness. So what Stephen's doing here is he's showing them that Moses, just like Jesus, is a rejected prophet. That, that actually he was sent by God um, to his people in order to liberate them from slavery, just like Jesus. And yet he received rejection. Rejection even from the elders. And he's showing that just like Joseph, just like Moses, there have been those throughout history with evil in their hearts, unwilling to accept what God is, what God is doing. And that's still happening right now, is what he's saying. He says in verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. Yikes. So that's what he has to say about Moses. He's on a roll at this point, so he continues. <laughs> and he continues with the story. He goes into David, who started to build the temple in Jerusalem for God. Solomon, who finishes it. And then he says, and then God comes to dwell among his people again. Side note. He was accused of wanting to destroy the temple, so what he has to say about the temple is really important. And in Acts 7, 48 to 50, he says, However, the Most High, he does not live in houses made by human hands. And then he quotes uh, Isaiah the prophet. He says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? Stephen's making a point that the place where they stood, the temple, which has become a god to them, is, is merely a pile of, of rocks and stones. It's never been on God's top list of the agenda to have a temple. <laughs> That's not his main agenda. His, his story, this, the whole story of the Israelite nation is not to, be, to, not to have this temple that they protect. Not, not, it's not about having this place where, where you have to come and worship only there. Actually, what he's saying is, is that your reverence for this building, for this temple, is way out of step with God's priorities. And how many times do we see that? Like even today in, in church where the building becomes their idol, they have to look after it and care for it and, and fix it and keep it going, even if it costs the church and it costs the people, the church is the people, you understand. And they look at, the building that they have becomes almost like an idol that they, that their whole church life is focused around keeping going and keeping upright. And actually what Stephen's shown is this temple's become that idol. God doesn't care where we worship or, 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 or where we come to him. What he cares about is that you do come to him or you do worship him. That's what he cares about. And he's teaching that God's plan has never been centered around the temple made of rock, but rather God's plan is about redemption of his people, about rescuing him, rescuing all of his people from true slavery, which is sin and death. And everything is about Jesus and his kingdom filling the earth, not about this temple. What is this place? God, God gave you the stone to make it. It's just a temple made by human hands. What God has done is so much more impressive. Whew. Can you imagine the, the tension in the room at this point? So here's Stephen, schooling the Sanhedrin on what God is doing. 
And he brings this accusation against the leaders of the Israelite nation. And he calls out their rebellion. He calls out that just like Moses, who was, who was rejected by the people of Israel, just like him, now the greater and truer Moses is, is here. And you're doing exactly the same thing. You care about this temple. <laughs> well, guess what? There's a new temple and God's presence is living within them and within me. Can you imagine the tension in the room? Well, just in case there are any doubt, he finishes his talk <laughs> with verses 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. It's Jesus. You, you betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Whew. Just in case there were any doubt of how he was feeling, <laughs> he tells them exactly. How will they respond to Stephen's speech? Well, you could probably hazard a guess, and we're going to cover that next week. But I want to finish by just allowing God to speak to us about what we've talked through this morning. You see, Stephen understood something so clearly, so powerfully, that everything in his life had changed. He understood just what Jesus had accomplished. He understood that Jesus had done everything. And now everything in Stephen's life had become about Jesus. Everything. Every decision that he would make, every word that he's now going to speak, you're going to see that next week. Every, every financial decision, every job decision that you make, every career move, every educational move, every time you want to move home, every time you want to spend some money, every time you want to decide what you're going to do with your day, every time you decide what you're going to watch on the internet or what you're going to watch on Netflix, every time you put on a piece of music, everything that you do must be done in a way that understands what Jesus has accomplished and done and now who you are because of him. Everything had become about Jesus. The law, was it valuable? Yes. But it wasn't everything. Jesus is everything. The temple, was it beautiful? The, even the disciples marveled at how good the stones were. Honestly, real conversation. But it was nothing compared to Jesus. And he understood that. He understood that Jesus fulfilled the law and now he can experience life and life to the full. We no longer need to worry about whether or not we make the cut, whether or not we're good enough, whether or not we're clean enough, whether or not we're righteous enough, whether or not we're forgiven for what we did that one time. We simply accept the one who was good enough, who fulfilled the law and his righteousness and, his, and that freedom is attributed to us. Let me say this. If you don't know 
the freedom, the life that I'm talking about, what Jesus has done, let me encourage you to give your life to him this morning. You see, the law, that religion, every other religion in the world is all about you. It's all about you. Are you good enough? Have you done the right thing? Have you followed the right rules? Have you done it the right time? And you just hope that you've done enough by the time that you die, that when you die, God approves of you because you did enough. You see, that's what religion is. But Christianity is not about you. It's all about anybody? Jesus. It's not about you working. It's about you accepting. It's about you allowing him into your life. And when you do, everything changes. Everything. And we say, goodbye, law. (laughs) Hello, grace and adoption. Hello, freedom. Hello, life. Hello, salvation. Hello, eternity. Hello, assurance. Goodbye, law. Goodbye, rules. Goodbye, trying to be good enough. And not just that, not only do we find a new standing in him, but he sends his spirit not to dwell in rocks in Jerusalem where you have to go and and just experience him for a little while, but actually to live within you. And you get to experience what it is to be filled with his power, with his spirit, to not have to to try and do things in your own strength anymore, but to become his temple, his dwelling place. And in fact, the truth is that the, the, the fact that he lives within you, that his spirit is within you, that you are his temple, proves that you are holy and righteous and clean because that's the only place he can dwell. And that's who you are because of him, because of Jesus. Jesus has done everything and now everything must become about Jesus. I'm going to finish by doing a couple of things. Uh, Phil and Jenny are going to come back up and we're just going to have one more song of of worship and response. But I'm going to give an opportunity for anybody in the room, actually all in the room, I'm going to give you an opportunity to to speak out and and to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, you might have done this a thousand times, but I'm going to encourage you to do it again this morning. So I want to encourage you to stand right now. If you can't stand. And and this is particularly important for you if you've never given your life to Jesus. Today is April the 3rd, 2022, and this could be the day that you remember for the rest of your life because this is the day that you gave your life to Jesus. This is the day, perhaps the first time that you accept. You don't have to try and be a good person. You don't have to try and be okay with God, you don't have to hope that by the time you're dead that God accepts you for who who you are and and that you've made it into heaven. Actually, what you can do right now is have assurance and, and take on Jesus, his righteousness, his salvation, and you can put it on yourself and you say, Lord, I accept you as your Lord and Savior. All you have to do is two things. You have to believe in your heart and proclaim with your lips that Jesus is Lord and you will receive salvation. That's all you have to do right now. So we're going to give an opportunity 
for you to read. I want to, we're going to read a prayer together on the screen. And even if you've said this prayer a thousand times, I'm going to encourage you to say it again with me as, a, as, as just a coming back to him. Jesus, I want to make my whole life about you. I know I mess up from time to time, but I accept who I am in you, Christ. And you're going to make me, you're going to make me more like you every day. Amen. Okay, so we're going to read this together. Read along with me. If you're saying it for the first time, I just want to encourage you to do it. Just say it out loud. Everybody's saying it with you anyway. Thank you, God, for loving me before I ever loved you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Thank you that you know me and love me completely. I know that I have made mistakes and now I ask for your total forgiveness. I turn away from everything I know is wrong. Today I choose to put my faith in you and say yes to following you. Please come into my life and fill me with your Holy Spirit now.